Hello and welcome to the Final Girls podcast. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. This podcast takes a horror trope and explores it in depth throughout discussions with special guests. Currently, we've got a season looking at vampires, and previously, we've covered witches and female monsters with their own seasons. And alongside that, occasionally, we cover new films or series that we really want to talk about, and sometimes we get to chat to the filmmakers who made them. But today's bonus episode is actually the first time that we interview an author in what I've only have jokingly christened as the Bloody Book Club. We're going to be interviewing some of the women who are writing horror. And I couldn't think of a better book to recommend to our listeners for the first edition of the <laughs> Bloody Book Club than Plain Bud Heroines. For anyone who's not heard about this book yet, Plain Bad Heroines is the new novel by author Emily M. Danforth, described by its authors Picnic at Hanging Rock plus The Blair Witch Project times Lesbians. It's a fantastic, engrossing read that genuinely feels like watching a creepy all-girls boarding school film, which, sidebar, is also one of my favorite subgenres of horror. To summarize the plot a little bit, Plain Bad Heroines follows Flo and Clara, two impressionable students who are obsessed with each other and with a young writer called Mary McLean, who authored a scandalous memoir. To show their devotion to Mary, the girls establish their own private club and call it the Plain Bad Heroines Society. Their bodies are later discovered with a copy of Mary's book, setting off a string of mysterious deaths at the all-girls boarding school that they attend. Over a century later, a best-selling book by literary wonderkin Merritt Amons, which is based on these events, inspires a horror movie adaptation starring celebrity actor and lesbian it girl Harper Harper and B-list actress and former child star Audrey Wells. As the filming begins, past and present become grimly entangled, and soon it's impossible to tell where the curse leaves off and Hollywood begins. I mean, if that synopsis does not entice you to read Playing About Heroines, I don't know what will. If you're still listening and you want to hear more about the book, please know there are no spoilers in this interview. And whether you've read Plain Bad Herons or you're planning on reading it or not, it's fascinating to hear from Emily if you love horror both in film and book form. Emily and I chat about a lot of things, namely her love for horror films, what inspired the book, unreliable narrators, the legacy of Mary McLean, by the way, a real person, you should Google her, you will not regret it, and also the burden of likability for female characters. So with that said, please enjoy my conversation with author Emily M. Danforth. Emily, thank you so much for for giving up a bit of your time to talk to me today. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited. So this is sort of a first for The Final Girls, and I'm thrilled that it's with you and with this book in particular um usually we cover film releases and and repertory horror films but i've been reading so much good horror fiction written by by female authors that well i'm really pleased that we're kind of launching a a version of a an audio version if you will of a book club with plain bad heroines (laughs) That's, I feel really honored that, I, that, I, that Plain Bad Heroines gets to be the inaugural book pick on Final Girls. So thank you. Yeah. There, is, there is better, more diverse, and I think like more female and queer folk-centered horror than ever before. So um, at least since I've been paying attention, which is, you know, a while most of my life. So yeah, I think it's, it's um, I'm thrilled that there's another 
another space to talk about it. It's a good time to be a horror fan. It is. So, um, before we probably dig into your book, can I ask you about your own relationship with horror? Yeah. Yeah. So I was, um, you know, it didn't start with films, which I think is the typical story, right? Like it was, you know, it's or, or a common story. I don't know if there is a typical story of it that, you know, I was a kid that was into slashers at this time. I Mine really started with urban legends um, and really young urban legends and ghost stories or, or friend of a friend stories, fofs. I really like that. Um, and I think you even see elements of that interest still bubble up in my work. You see it in Plain Bad Heroines. You see it in my interest in found footage. This notion that somewhere, if we just trace the story far enough, no matter how outlandish we get to something that's true, right? I love that. Um, and I also love that somehow we give credibility to a story that is just entirely not plausible by saying, uh, well, it was my cousin's sister, you know, like it was, it's four people removed and therefore, um, we should really buy this story. And I just, I've always been really drawn to that and, and would go up to not strangers. I won't get dramatic, but as a child, I mean, I would ask, family reunions I would you know I want like tell me your scariest story right tell me um and and meaning that kind of a story tell me a ghost story tell me a you know um hopefully not a story that's that was like deeply traumatizing to people um although I don't know I was a strange kid so maybe I was asking that question but that's really where it started it was that kind of sense of like there are the world is you know there are scary stories all around us the world can be a really dangerous place and i wanted to be told them and there was something about that like oral tradition of it too that was really interesting to me um and that moved into pocket slasher books like like rl stein and richie tankhurst lecusic was a writer i really liked um I remember a book called Teacher's Pet that I must have read 15 times. And you could read those in an afternoon and they were really thrilling. And, and then Stephen King, I had my Stephen King phase. And then later it really was films. And I will say, and then I, this is probably a really long answer to this question, but the three films that, that I would say, the three horror films that affected me most before the age of 25 were probably Blair Witch Project, Scream, and and 1986 is April Fool's Day. I'm just going to be honest about that. And and you can see reverberations of those three films in Plain Bad Heroines. And, you know, now I'm 40 in my interest in horror still today. So obviously they infected me um, in this way that I wasn't expecting, you know, at, 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 I think I saw Scream at, in the, the, you know, the summer, when it came out, the year that it came out. So it would have been the summer before my junior and senior years of high school. Um and and Zubler, which also right when it came out. So yeah, those those three were like the the films that then kind of set me into you know horror education at a time when I you couldn't stream things when I still kind of had to go and rent them um, and and do this piecemeal kind of education. But it's it's yeah, which is I think that, that's an interesting combination of films. But it feels like when I say it and I and I've thought that recently, I'm like, oh no, that makes complete those those are all my interests in three films basically, all my horror interests. So yeah. I love that. And I love I love hearing about everyone's horror education, because mm. it's like a discovery and a really personal one that only really makes sense in hindsight. Yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 I'm really glad that you mentioned the Blair Witch Project, because one of the ways that the Plain But Herons is totally infused with horror history and horror films in particular in so many different ways. But I'm really love the way that you describe it in the the elevator pitch for the book even on your website is picnic at hanging rock plus the Blair Witch Project times lesbians 
equals plain butt hair ends. <laughs> that started as a joke, and now I don't even say it kind of smirking anymore. I'm like, no, that just is what the book is. Like, it's that I don't have anything better for it. It makes total sense. And I find it really curious that um, you kind of mentioned two very specific, very revered horror films mm. in this kind of condensation of what the book is. So can you talk a little bit about how you know, you, your love for horror films and these ones in particular, Picnic at Hanging mm. Rock and Blair Witch Project, influenced the writing of Plain Bad Heroines. Absolutely. So, I mean, so Blair Witch obviously is the, the one that I saw earlier and saw as a college student and have, you know, the kind of, I think, a, a pretty classic horror fan, particularly around that movie um, story of so I, I grew up in Montana and I'm home from college in Montana. Montana is a big state, right? Lots of landscape and the little, uh, shitty little town that I came from did not get the Blair Witch Project the week, you know, the week that it came out. I'm not sure if we got it at all, but it would have been weeks and weeks later. And so a group of friends, um, who wanted to see the film or that I probably strong armed into wanting to see the film, we drove two hours across the state to Billings to go to a theater to see it. And by the time we got there and went to get our tickets, it was so popular. I mean, I, I think, you know, um, people remember or have looked up and, 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 and know just like how, um, how popular the film was pretty early on, right? And how excited I think like audiences were. And so we uh, couldn't get tickets and we had to wait around and wait around this town and, and got into like the midnight showing, which had not been our plan. Um, I was petrified throughout. I did not, you know, the question with the Blair Witch is always, did you think it was real, right? Did you go in thinking this really was um, footage? I did not think that. Um, but I did think that, that maybe there were kernels of the story of the Blair Witch that were true, right? So I didn't think, like, I knew that this was a film. I knew that there had been a marketing campaign. But I still, again, that interesting kind of, like, what's the seed story? Mm -hmm. I thought, well, all that stuff about you know, what, what took place in Maryland and the children that died and, the, you know, that, some of that seemed to me like maybe there could be a kernel of truth there. Right. Um, and so I, I let myself believe that, but I was petrified the whole movie, just absolutely terrified, kind of out of my skin. And so was everybody that I was with. And then we got back and had to drive the two hours through desolate Montana wilderness to get home. And we got home. And again, I was, I was a college student by this point. I couldn't, my parents had a big old kind of uh, ramshackle house and I couldn't bring myself to go up to the third floor where my bedroom was. I couldn't do it and so I slept but I was also embarrassed to like tell my parents that I had done this thing to myself so I slept on the floor on the landing outside my parents bedroom and they had to kind of step over me in the morning to get out and that's like my you know I, I think there's a lot of horror films that I've seen since that I appreciate there are things I appreciate them that is one of those films that viscerally scared me and has continued to scare me every time I've watched it since so it really gets under my skin and I think it's just is so effectively done um, so yeah, that's my like my my viewing story, and then in terms of um, thinking about using it in the film, obviously there was found footage before Blair Witch. There's been a lot of found footage since, but it's so iconic in terms of like what it brought to the genre. And I think even like getting folks that weren't that into form more familiar with the term found footage and what we meant by that, um, and and so. Part of that shows up in the novel in the the, the filmmakers in my, in my book are making a found footage horror film. Um, and that's about the curse that's covered in the historic portion of, of, of the book. And so they're on location where this supposed curse is supposed to take place. I don't want to have any spoilers, but they certainly have a number of things up their sleeve to get convincing performances from their from their actors um, and have a real, you know, these are people that have a love of found footage and, and are pretty aware of, you know, what it does well. I mean, I think Bo the director 
director even references Lake Mungo, which is which is one of my favorite recent um, found footage horror films, or semi-recent at this point. So there's a lot of winking, obviously, that goes on in the novel. But that kind of love of of thinking about the potential of found footage, and and I think one of the things I love about it so much, and and there are a few that that do more than this, but how um, how creative often it seems to me like the filmmakers get with the scares, with the actual, right? Like in, in terms of sort of special effects, but I think just even in terms of how they're using, um, you know, whatever cameras they're using to cut footage together, it's always so, it always feels like there's this sort of like extra effort to deliver the scare, right? And not in a, in a, in a kind of ten- technical green screen sort of way. Um, and there's something in me that just really appreciates that. It, there, it, it seems to me a form that really inspires ingenuity, which isn't to say we don't have some bad examples, but it's still, you know, maybe because people are like, oh, what's left to do with found footage? Well, every few years we get somebody who's like, I'll show you what's left to do with found footage. And I really love that. So um, every time I kind of hear somebody say, oh, it's dead. I don't want to see another found footage film. That's when you get a Lake Mungo or that's when you, you know, I just watched Bad Ben the other day and, you know, and, and that guy sort of making the film alone on his phone. Um, you know, the story behind that film is really interesting too, which has apparently become a franchise. Anyway, I've gotten very off topic. And so um, <laughs> Picnic at Hanging Rock, I saw much later. And I think unlike most people, I don't know if I have this entire trajectory right, but I'm pretty sure that I read the Joan Lindsay novel before I saw the Peter Weir film. And that's, not, I think that's right. And I know that's not very common. In fact, a lot of people haven't that love the Weir film haven't read the Joan Lindsay novel at all. Um, if you have you know that she starts with, you know, the, the list of characters and then this kind of, you know, this, this, um, this inscription about the events may or may not be true. And so again, that, that's, this is something I'm very interested in, right? This notion of is essentially, I don't have the exact words, but these events may not be true, but what does it matter? Because it took place in 1900 and these people are all aren't, you know, they're dead anyway. Um, and this was entirely a fiction, right? Of course, none of this was true, but Lindsay was coy about that for a number of years after the, you know, she, she played with that and kind of leaned into it. Um, and, you know, it sort of filtered these details about about the you know the the private school she'd gone to in australia and you know and so i I, there's something that again feels like it bubbles up with my interests and then the the time period turn of the 20th century a women's boarding school these kind of victorian constraining victorian customs and the the moody ambiguity the just sort of gothic sensibility of that novel um is you know is something i certainly was taking up in plain bad heroines and um yeah the weir film is one of the rare films that you know maybe better than than the book i mean it's it's gorgeous and strange and it gets under your skin it's just so um deeply unsettling um and it's also just beautiful. Like, it's just such a treat to watch. So I'm sorry. I feel like I've been talking at you for 45 minutes. But no, <laughs> not at all. I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it and also just okay. taking notes. Um, but you actually bring up some very, very interesting points that I want to pick you up on. And kind of to go bit by bit, one of the things you've just you kind of mentioned that also is very much seen in Plain Bad Herons is the unreliable narrator. And yeah. I have to admit, I haven't read Picnic at Hanging Rock, the book. Mm. I immediately went but there there was something almost unexpected of the narrator of the novel just popping up and increasingly being so playful and familiar with the reader constantly addressing addressing you as dear reader dear readers there's it's like a you could almost hear the voiceover, a kind of a sassy Mm. voiceover in your ear as Mm. you're reading the book. So I wanted to kind of ask you about the decision to include this 
you know, playful, but also quite unreliable and um, sometimes almost lecturing narrator who gives you mm. background information and also tells you that ah, it's actually probably not true or I don't really know anything about this. So kind of how, how did you envision that structure and the role of this narrator? Oh, yeah, I love that question. Thank you. I didn't know how to write this novel until I leaned in. I found that voice, essentially, the voice of that narrator. Um, and that was, I, I'm a slow writer, especially with a book like this. This was a years long process. And so that was a ways into working on this book. I, initially, I thought I was only going to tell the story of the making of the, of the present day cursed horror movie. That was what the book was going to be. And we would cycle probably in first person point of view between, uh, the three, the two, the two actors and, um, um, Harper and Audrey and Merritt, the writer. And that would really be kind of the way that the story was told. Um, and I got a ways into that version of the book and was trying to answer really just for myself the question of, well, why is Burkhans, which is the, the boarding school where this film is where the curse is set and the film has been taking place. I didn't really know the, the contours of the curse, right? I had some like sort of vague ideas. I d certainly had an atmosphere. I'd had a location. I'm in Rhode Island. It was this isolated, you know, estate on the ocean, but I didn't really know what the curse was. And trying to answer to myself, well, what could be the curse? I landed on a, a staple of Gothic fiction, which is the cursed object. Um, and Mary McLean's book as that cursed object came in later. I knew it would be a cursed object. I knew it would pass hands. I didn't know it would be that particular book. Um, that really just was sort of me, um, I think, which is a common problem with novelists who write historical fiction, becoming kind of entranced in the research and just going down rabbit holes, looking at Gilded Age ghost stories by Edith Wharton and Henry James. I didn't know that Edith Wharton had written as many ghost stories as she had. I really didn't have any idea. Of course, I knew the turn of the screw. Um, and there isn't it's not like a Victorian direct address in those novels. But there are narrators in, in several of those stories that have this very kind of um, knowing quality to their narration. So it's, it's you know, the, the opening paragraph will be something like, we were put in the mood for a ghost story. And there's this acknowledgement, right, that I'm not going to just put you in the ghost story, but there there is a collective telling of the story. We're going to gather around for the purposes of scaring ourselves. And now that we've established that, I'll tell you the story. And so there is, it does feel a little bit meta, not in the way that we apply that term now, but it feels a little bit sort of, you know, turn of the century meta. And it also has this, again, this kind of knowing quality to the narration. Um, and, and that, you know, that started to creep in. And then, of course, we have, there's lots of, of Victorian novels and Gothic novels where we can look directly at direct address and, and the use of sort of, you know, addressing the reader. Um, but yeah, I, I had been working for a while on the novel, realizing I wanted to have a historic section, you know, writing scenes, thinking who the characters would be. Um, and, it, and, and, and it was several pages into that. And, and knowing how I write, I mean, I would say probably... <laughs> you know, a hundred pages, 150 before I kind of figured out who's telling this story and that it would be this winking, knowing, tongue firmly in cheek most of the time narrator um, who, who, you know, um, knows more than they should, but is also happy to tell you when they don't know anything at all. Right. Um, and, and, and I think it's the one that really takes you by the hand and kind of says, come with me through this novel. And I'm probably going to lead you down some alleyways and some dead ends for the fun of it because I'm having a good time. Right. I'm taking pleasure in telling you the story. Um, but, but you can trust me ultimately. So yeah, I, I think like, I didn't know again, that sort of like the, the retrospect, I didn't know how much that Edith Wharton, Henry James reading period really, 
um, crept into the book in terms of thinking about the pleasure being taken and telling this kind of story. Not just how do I tell it well and how do I create the scenes and what kind of historical research do I do, but like this is a this is an act of pleasure telling you this this ghost story. So this horror story. It kind of really creates this sense of, and I know how weird this is going to sound, of almost um, the book reads like a film in a way. Mm. Like, oh, no, that doesn't sound weird. It, because even even while I was reading it, the constant um, interaction with all the layers of the story and all the levels of it and the things that are not and references to things that perhaps are real, that are references to real curses on film sets or real books or, you know, merits uh, interest or obsession or comparison with Truman Capote, all of those things mm. then play around with, um, with, your, with your reading experience, I found. And it made it so much more active in a way mm. oh yeah i love that i mean i i like an intrusive narrator right obviously and i like kind of when the world of a novel feels as like it's trying to be as large as the world as the world right which is of course never possible i mean i love films that do that as well it's that you can't do that but when it, you feel like the novelist is trying to get everything onto the page um i like a really slim novel too that's super economical i mean i'm you know i'm a sucker for stories in, in general but um so yeah i like that I, I like that experience and i and i think like you've said it well i i i i i, I like it when a novel feels sort of overstuffed and um yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I'll I'll be thinking about that for a while. It reads like a film. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I, I wanted to, you've mentioned her already. I find her such a fascinating secondary character in the book, and it's Mary McLean. And yes. I, I'll admit, and you know, we talked about this briefly before we hit record, that as I was reading the book, I fully thought she was a made-up character that you'd made up for the purposes of, of creating this cursed object, which is her, her, first, her first book, her memoir that she wrote at age 19. It seemed like such an over-the-top story of a young woman at the turn of the 20th century writing what's essentially this this. I don't know, self-confessional. I mean, in the book then, after which I read afterwards, she calls it a confessional or a portrayal, I believe. Yeah. And it's so much of a self-portrait of, of a woman's wants, but also has this really, you know, uh, provocative title of, of, you know, including the devil in the title of a memoir by a 19-year-old is already quite aggressive, <laughs> especially for the time. I await the devil's coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, 1902. <laughs> and and it fits into this kind of cursed object thing that that you were alluding to before. So I wanted to ask you, um, when did you discover Mary McLean, and what about her made you want to not just title your book after after something that she that she wrote in in I Await the Devil's Coming, but also make her such an integral part of the story? Hmm. Yeah. So I I. I... I don't know exactly when I discovered Mary McLean. It was before I was writing Plain Bad Heroines. Um, she showed up in a, I think in a footnote, um, which is winking. <laughs> this novel is replete with footnotes, but showed up in a footnote. Um, I, I was reading about Butte, Montana, the mining town where Mary McLean grew up. And it was, um, you know, it was called the Paris of the West, uh, you know, at the, at the turn of the century, essentially, although Americans like to say that about all of their Western towns. Um, and, and I, you know, she, she showed up there and I kind of made a note to myself. Um, and then did a little bit of research and it kind of socked that away. Um, 
and at some point, and I don't remember the exact kind of like the history of it, but I got my hands on um, I Await the Devil's Coming, which she wasn't able to publish. Um, she was able to publish it, uh, you know, at, uh, uh, um, in 1902, but uh, it was published under the, the sort of much more banal title, The Story of Mary McLean. And I got my hand on that book and realized that, you know, I'd read about how she was in a sensation. I'd read about how the book was an overnight bestseller. I didn't expect to be so sort of charmed by the book itself and by her voice in the book and as you said how confessional she is how how hard she works in the in the language of that book to try to be honest and to interrogate she'll tell you something and then sometimes she'll interrogate what she's just told you or say i'm not doing this well enough right and and in this way that it really feels like when she said this is my capital p portrayal of who i am that she wanted to get it down on the page just as it is. And it's an incredibly queer book. Um, the, she finds language to talk about the attraction she has for her former teacher, Fanny Corbin, um, the language of the day, but she makes it very explicit, right? That this was not a romantic friendship, that she had these sexual feelings for her teacher. Um, and then, yeah, she's beseeching the devil throughout it. So I think that was the thing that I'd heard that she was a a sensation. I knew she was an interesting figure who led an interesting life. I had no idea how much I was going to love her book. And it made complete sense to me once I read it that, of course, teen girls around the country, right, were forming Mary McLean clubs in her honor, which is a thing that happened. And um, a, a woman named Viola Larson stole a horse in Chicago when, she, when she's brought before the judge. And she was a member of one of these clubs. She said, well, I had to do something. I have to write my book like Mary McLean, right? So I do like, of course, I'm, you know, I'm going to steal a horse because I have to, I have things to write about like Mary McLean. And so she became this kind of hero at the same time, of course, that critics and teachers and parents were um, scandalized by the things that that she wrote about in the book and the, and the way that she saw herself as a, as a woman at that time. And so, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I wish I had a better, a neater trajectory for this, but it would be a lie. But it's, at some point it just became clear to me as I was spending more time in the historical portions of the novel, that of course this would be a text that would show up. Right. And, and even I think in some early drafts, when the text sh showed up, I didn't know it was going to be the cursed object that mm. passed hands. Like I didn't know, I think originally we were going to, I'm not spoiling anything. It's the first chapter. It, the uh, Flo and Clara were going to have the book. Um, and that would kind of be that. Mm -hmm. Right. And, 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 you know, th there would be some, Obviously, the, it really would be about the the fact that they were in this this relationship, and students on campus knew that, and and you know the parents were upset about it, and what have you. Um, but again, thinking about the gothic and, and gothic novels, I love it. Just made sense to keep using that book, and for it to come up again and again and again. So it was really in the process of creating the book that it that that Mary McLean kind of. I feel like I was sort of haunted by, not by Mary McLean. I don't know, you know, but by I Await the Devil's Coming. I mean, um, it's, it's some of the cadences even show up a little bit in Plain Bad Heroes. And I can see kinds of, without necessarily the same intention of what well, I'm going to quote from her here of, of just, you know, feeling kind of her always like looking over my shoulder as I was writing the book. So, um, so yeah, I, and I'm delighted. I'm just delighted that, that it's, people like you are, are are discovering or rediscovering Mary McLean because of it so oh yeah. in incredible and for I mean I'll probably go off or go off on Mary McLean anywhere I can but <laughs> one of the fascinating things that I, again I found so shocking is that once I actually go went down that rabbit hole of finding out more about her is that she 
had touched so many forms of art. She was a, a writer, a, a novelist. She was a whole personality, um, incredibly notorious and famous in her right. She was involved in film. I was fascinated with the film that is now lost that she made that is supposed to have one of the first um, breaks of the fourth wall in it that is yes. also written by her. And it's entirely about all the men that she slept with and she doesn't even give them names, which no. I... <laughs> The men who have made love to me. I mean, like, uh, I we can't find this, right? But we, yeah, yeah, obsessed, instantly obsessed. And yeah. it actually, you mentioned something really interesting about the Mary McLean phenomenon that I think leads me on to one of the things that I wanted to ask you about the book, and it's how you deal with the idea of fame and notoriety mm. with the characters in the book. Because, and again, without spoiling anything. Um, all of the the lead protagonists, all of the heroines in in the novel, are dealing with some sort of um with some element of fame, and it's very different. Mm. Merritt is obviously kind of a, a literary wonderkind. Harper is the the it girl of Hollywood. Audrey wants fame, but is more haunted by her mother's more more famous career and mm. being associated with that and being a child star. And there's the the legacy of Mary McLean kind of haunting them as well, who, mm. as you mentioned, was incredibly famous at a very young age, um, at a completely different time, mm. and kind of had that effect of people imitating her and and those fan clubs, which now seems wild for such a for such a young author. And it seems wild that she's not more well known considering mm. how young she was and how much we culturally uh, you know, love to elevate young um young prodigies especially young women who who make art in whatever form it is so mm -hmm. so very early on so that's a very long-winded way to ask you how did you did you think about approaching the idea of fame and notoriety mm. through all of these different characters and playing about heroines mm. yeah i mean i think that specter of mclean's fame did inform those three contemporary characters in the way that you just said and again in a way that would not have been as true um, other than maybe in the way that I was thinking about rendering merit, um, until I started utilizing the Mary McLean text more fully. And then, and then again, it, it was, it, you know, it, it just becomes apparent. You can say it, but I think if you read her book, um, or you read a little bit about her, or you read a Wikipedia article, just how, um, like how relevant her life seems more than a hundred years later, right? Like how, how contemporary, I guess, um, some of the, the things in terms of fame seems, um, I think is the better way to put it, that it, it doesn't feel at all dated, right? Which is the thing that happens all the time when we go into the past and we say, oh, this is, this is more relevant to my life. But it, but it, it feels like her experience is happening again and again with stars, right? And with writers and, um, and it, it, it sort of hasn't stopped. So yeah, I think that again, just, just that, thinking about how she was treated and then forgotten um, and the doors that were opened for her. But, you know, the, I, th I think the thing that she really asks for in, in um, the story of Mary McLean is, is that fame brings her happiness, right? She says, devil, I want fame, but I want mm. happiness too. And she's, she's aware enough at 19 to know that that's not going to happen, but she still wants it, right? Like there's still that kind of, that kind of desire. Um, and I think maybe we see that most, um, 
maybe most with Harper, um, who's just not, you know, that, that maybe like her rise as a character most sort of closely um, parallels Mary McLean in that she's entirely unknown. They're both from Montana, but she's talented, right? Like she has the talent and talent and luck are really the thing that kind of get her out of there, right? Like she's, she's really starting from nothing, but it's, but, but she nails an audition scene, right? And, and that combined with luck are the thing that sort of um, get her on her way. But now she, you know, now that she has it, she doesn't really know what to do with it. And Mary McLean certainly had that period of her life too, where everybody's looking at her. She's being written about all the time, but like, now what do you do with that? How do you harness that? Um, and as many doors open for her, like I said, doors shut for her. I mean, she's, she's being written about every paper in the country, but she can't get into Radcliffe because she doesn't have, you know, supposedly the educational background, basically because she wasn't the kind of young lady that Radcliffe wanted to, you know, admit at the time. So, um, you know, she's a household name and yet like, how does a woman of that time harness that power? And then how does a Harper Harper sort of harness that agency um, as well and not just have it be co-opted, right? Or manipulated by the powers that be. And that's a thing that Harper's trying to negotiate as well. Um, Audrey's more savvy because her mom had an experience of this, right? And she's seen kind of how Hollywood can... Um, can make you burn bright and then sort of spit you out the next day um, and, and has firsthand experience with that. But she too, I think um, she, she really wants to get out of her mother's shadow, mm -hmm. right? She sort of wants to prove to herself that whatever success she's already had, it hasn't just been due to the fact that she's her mother's daughter and that she can do it on her own. And I think that drives her more than love of craft will say, right? Mm -hmm. It's that she can kind of prove this. Um, yeah. And then Merit, I think like in thinking of her fame, it probably less fame that makes me, that makes me sound big headed, but I think I did put a lot of my own experience into Merit in terms of specifically not being able to write the second book, having a first book and, and having a, you know, get some attention. Mm. Um, and, and then, and then letting too much the narrative of the sophomore slump kind of get into my head and to think about, well, when you make your first film or write your first book or your first play, nobody knows who you are. Nobody's asking anything of you. Right. But whatever, you know, the, the first work does, people have a sense of who you are and what you can do after you do that thing. You've kind of been put in a certain slot um, for better, for worse. And, and I really let myself get kind of haunted by this notion of this is the kind of writer I am. And these mm -hmm. are the kinds of things I write. And um, yeah, and and it took me a long time to get out of that. And part of that was you know channeling some of that through merit. This mm. kind of well, what do you do? Who had a much bigger first book than my my first book was? But this kind of idea of like, how do I reinvent myself, or or do I even allow myself to do this other thing that feels scary? And and merit because of the kind of character she is, you know, she takes on a task that. Partly because everyone tells her it's a, it's a ridiculous task and no one should try to do it. I think that's part of the challenge for her. She tries to finish Truman Capote's infamously and maybe deservedly unfinished first novel. Um, and part of that is the challenge of, 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 of writing a book beyond the first book that she wrote. But I do think part of it is, is proving to herself that she can, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when, you know, people close in her life and larger are sort of saying, don't do that. Don't, you know, don't try to take that on. It's not, it's not for you. So, um, you know, there's, there's gotta be an arrogance for her, right? We would say it was an arrogance. Um, and I would say it was a belief in herself that, that she would try to finish, right? She, as this young woman author, would try to finish Capote's unfinished novel, that she would think that she could do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can already imagine the press that would be written about her for doing it. So. The audacity. Yeah. Yes. The um, that's the word. The audacity. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. Um, but you actually make a really interesting point that le- leads into my next question for you. And it's the idea of kind of what's expected of our female leads and our female characters. Mm. And, you know, it's it might be a, a superficial reference, but the book opens with, with this passage with an excerpt from Mary McLean's memoir and where it kind of ends with the title of the book, Plain But Herons. And there's a lot of, um, I think, interrogation, uh, both directly and in the subtext of the book of kind of what makes a heroine, what makes us want mm. to continue on a journey with a character, particularly when that character is a woman, particularly when that character is a queer woman, like what is mm. expected of them and what's allowed for them. Mm. And mm. I was wondering kind of you if you could talk a little bit about your ideas or your thoughts behind um, you know, the idea of badness or likability mm. that's allowed um for female characters in particular and how you worked through that or worked around that or, or completely you know threw it out the window with plain bad herons yeah yeah, that's a great question as well i mean i think that i um as a novelist i think i'm 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 and as a queer woman i'm uniquely aware of the power um and as a ya novelist i should say of representation right and that the 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 power of of a reader seeing a version of themselves a version of their life on the page and and just like how life affirming that can be and i and i everyone has these stories but i mean mine are that i the closest sort of relationship that I have with the protagonist of my first novel, Cam Post, other than that we grew up in the same small town, is that she obsessively rents these videos in order to try to either actively queer them or catch glimpses of queer characters, right? Because she's so desperate in 1988 Eastern Montana to figure out how she should correctly be queer. Right. That like there, there's if maybe I can see if I, I can't see anything in my real life, but if I can find like, a couple examples in film that I can, okay, that's how you do it. And I'll go ahead and do that. And I did that in a much more literal way than when I say that, I think people recognize, I mean, it really was kind of, I've got a very small handful of these, this, this is how to do it, you know? Um, And so I'm aware of that. I'm aware of the power of representation. At the same time, I'm also, you know, aware of the burden of representation and the feeling sometimes I think as a queer, uh, a queer novelist that, um, that everything is riding on how right or wrong you get it, right? You get your portrayal. Um, and, 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 you know, especially for like this, this sort of handful of, of queer women. And I think we do that sometimes, obviously, because there have been so many, um, um, writers over the years who aren't queer, who have tried to sort of take our stories and tell them for, you know, all kinds of reasons and maybe not tell them very well. And we've, we've gone to those stories because there wasn't a lot else to choose from, right? And so we sort of, have fed into that and then also sometimes rejected it. Um, but, you know, I think one of the, the most significant things I did that was both intentional and also just, um, it just completely made sense to me, given the people that populate my world, is that the vast majority of the cast of characters in the present day and in the past are queer. Right. And so it's not that there's okay. So if there's a burden, it's not that there's one queer character. Right. And everything is kind of riding on that coming out story or that, right. That trajectory of that character and we're following them. And then really the entire novel, right. The characters are queer and, 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 and not, I hope in a tokenized way, but in a way that feels like, well, that's somebody having this queer experience and Audrey's having here queer woman experience. And it does not look like, you know, Harper's and, and, um, and queerness is not the fulcrum around which the, the novel spins, at least not in terms of like a coming out kind of this is me wrestling with my identity it is a very queer novel but i say that sort of in a punny tongue-in-cheek way because it's it's queer and sort of um 
both senses of that word. So that was part of it, right? Really thinking about the cast and in the historic section, as much as in the contemporary, all the characters are living queer lives and they look um, um, different necessarily. That was both intentional and kind of just made sense. It looks like my world. Um, and the other thing that I really wanted to do is to give these heroines stories that were pretty messy, like uh, messy containers, right? To not kind of feel like, to try as much as possible to say, um, they get to be as real and complex on the page, right? As, as any straight sort of character does. Um, and, and I, I guess to try to hold true to that, I think that sometimes when we read about, you know, when I read sort of, oh, this is a great portrayal of a complicated woman, they're complicated to a point, but there's still a lot of effort, to, I think, to keep them pretty likable. Um, and, and you get that sort of sense of maybe the, the author kind of giving them some quirks, like it's, oh, his, this is a little abrasive, but like we can still kind of get behind this story. Um, and again, you know, every writer has different sensibilities, but I wanted, um, I wanted these characters' lives to be, and the stories that surround them to be sort of messy, and I didn't want them to be too neat. And I didn't, I didn't want to kind of, um, obviously there's not sort of one story of queer womanhood or, or queer, young queer fame or queer influencer or even sort of, um, um, past queers being told here. There's a chorus of them and that was intentional too. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, however much I succeeded or I didn't, both of those things were things that I was thinking about is that, um, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, I got a little long-winded there, and I'm, I'm trying to think through what you asked. But yeah, I, 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 that's always on my mind. Um, mm -hmm. But then thinking about how to convincingly convey that on the page is not—it's um, a—it's a hard thing to kind of walk back and explain. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, and yeah. I think it's not a long-winded answer at all because I think the, the complications of of even trying to to answer something that is so kind of huge because yeah. a single book, a single film, a single character, or even a chorus of characters cannot carry or undo or respond to literally hundreds of years and eons of years of culture and cultural conversation and cultural um, canonizing of a particular type of female right. character and then a particular type yeah. of queer character and queer female character and all of those experiences. There's there's no right or wrong way, but the burden right. that you've described, I think, is is kind of re a really interesting insight into the thinking that you have to do, even as you're trying to to write these characters and to and to give them life and to make them communicate with the reader. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like one thing that like a, a specific thing that the novel takes up is right this this notion that I've that I've certainly. I've certainly weighed in on, um, <laughs> you know, it, with various pieces of media of like the, um, you know, the kill your gaze trope, right? Mm -hmm. And it's something the novel itself talks about. So when I knew that I was going to be writing a Gothic horror novel that necessarily is going to have characters die, and because my novel is entirely populated by queer characters, some of the characters that die are going to be queer, right? So, th so then really thinking about that and thinking about what that means, but then also not wanting to deny myself as, as someone who loves Gothic horror novels the chance to write a gothic horror novel which is going to have characters that die right like that is that's a thing that happens and so um you know i think we can the novel asks you to sort of debate that it, are they killed because of their what else is going on there why do these characters die and what, what is, without spoilers what does that have to do with the curse mm -hmm. that Brookhans, what you know but um but it was something that was both on my mind but but not something that i wanted to kind of like shy away from as a, as a lifelong lover of gothic novels that you know, it, 
kind of is following the classic advice of, of you write the novel you want to read. And I wanted to read a big, messy, metagothic novel filled with queer women, right? And so, um, yeah, being aware of that and being aware of these discussions and where they've come from, but then also kind of not putting the brakes on and saying, well, I shouldn't try to make anything at all then, right? Because um, it's a scary landscape to fall into, so, Yeah. And and kind of start to start um, wrapping up our conversation because I'm conscious of of your time. I wanted to ask you. You've you've mentioned Cameron Post, the Miseducation of Cameron Post, which was adapted into a, a fantastic film by Desiree Akavan, which I really really mm-hmm. loved. And I was wondering if if the making of that film. I I don't know how directly involved uh you were with the actual production of it, but between that experience and also the kind of any research into cursed horror films or your interest in found footage films and your interest in in horror uh in horror filmmaking as well did did that research in your real life experience with um with Cameron Post influence the way that you wrote or uh, structured the the contemporary section of playing at herons especially when when they're actually shooting the film Mm. any section that it did influence it probably of any section it was it was the shooting of the film the most um rather than obviously or i i guess I, i i hope that it's obvious um I did not have the experience that, that, that Merritt has of kind of feeling um, <laughs> led down. And again, there's spoilers here, but like led down a certain path by the filmmakers and then, you know, having a, having the rug pulled out from under her. Um, I had known um, uh, Desi a little bit, just to give you some background, before she optioned the book and we'd met a few times. Um, and when she optioned the book, she, you know, we, we had a long conversation about the, the it's a big book that follows Cameron for a long time that she was really going to be looking at the final third of the novel and, and setting it, you know, this larger novel at primarily at the conversion therapy camp. Um, and I had some awareness of that. And then I did read some versions of the script that she and, and her writing partner, Cecilia Fugioelle wrote. Um, and I gave some notes, most of which they, rightly rejected but they let me see the drafts which is really nice um you know because i'm a novelist so i'm precious right so i'm always like why don't we add this back in and they're like yeah no we know what we're doing um and then i did get to go to set a few times and um and that was and, and briefly in the rock concert scene like if you blink you'll miss me but i'm there and so um so it was you know somewhat involved I, I certainly had a sense of what was going on and the thing that i think as like a lifelong lover of film as someone who's you know read hollywood memoirs and hollywood scandal sheets and has always been interested in kind of like how movies are made um i think that i i thought that i knew that filmmaking was collaborative like i, I could have told you that oh of course this is very it's very, very different than being a novelist i'm alone at my keyboard this is a lot of people it's one thing to think that you know that and it's another thing to be on set right even of an indie film and this was you know this was a small small budget film and to see how many people have to work together to make the thing that you watch for 90 minutes on your, you know, on in a movie theater when we can still go to movie theaters or on, on your computer screen. Um, just how many people are lending kind of their creative insights and efforts into making that thing. And it's, it's completely different. I mean, you, I don't have to tell you this, you, you, you work in film to be on set and to see that and to, and to really think about, this person doing their job changes the film in this way, right? And this, and it's not, it's not just the, necessarily the things that we give the big, the big awards to, right? Um, and so I, I think I, I did take that in and that does show up in the contemporary section of the novel, just mm-hmm. thinking a bit about being on set and thinking about how 
this person not doing their job or this thing happening to this person in the course of doing their job because of the curse could affect the movie in this way. And the other thing that I learned that just seems really obvious to people, and I don't think is unique to indie films. I used to, but I don't, I I just think it's, it is how filmmaking works often um, is how (laughs) tentative everything can be the whole process, basically until you're, you're standing at the premiere Right. I don't think that I have a hard time sometimes explaining it to people, but you know, I remember we were keeping some things under wraps and I would hear from them, it looks like it's a go or, you know, they'd cast Chloe or, you know, a thing had happened and then it would be like, but it could still not happen. And I, and I just had a, I just kept being like, but you've booked a location. You've got, you know, all these people. I'm like, what do you mean it could not happen? I just couldn't. And so that kind of like, it could or it couldn't, it might, you know, until the thing is made, um, both feels like it's really pliable and that's interesting. Like if you're, if it, like there's like opportunity there to change the thing at any moment um but also i think if you haven't experienced it it's it's you know it, it can be hard to kind of get your mind around just how true that is so that stuff show, shows up to some extent in play about heroines yeah oh i think you described it really well it's a it's a control freaks nightmare and dream <laughs> <laughs> right yes Yes, because at any moment you can like, if you have, if you have the ability, you can put your will on the film and change the whole thing, right? And I, I know, I, I know your audience is <laughs> folks that are very savvy about films, so they're rolling their eyes at this point. And they're like, yeah, we get it. But again, I'm, I'm not, I'm, it's just me and my laptop 90% of the time. And so the idea of like, in some cases, hundreds of people were, you know, I, it, yeah, it's, it, I just, I'm I'm constantly impressed by producers and specifically because of the wrangling that they have to do and yeah. this constant juggling balancing act of people egos deals percentages yeah. territories very practical tiny stuff that can have a knock on effect and very big kind of you know mammoth artistic and talent based stuff of you know just relationships and the art itself and the script and and still everything can change it's I don't yes <laughs> Yeah, I know it sounds cliche, but it really is a wonder to me when you step back and look at it that anything gets made, right? That anything ever gets made other than like a bad Ben where it's just a guy with a cell phone who's like, I'll just do it myself. And I'm just going to make the, you know, that maybe makes sense. But that any of these other production, most of the films we've ever seen kind of get off the ground is like it, um, which, which, you know, makes me feel like romantic about film in a way that, that sometimes I don't for other reasons. Right. Like, so, um, so I like that, like this, this idea that, and I, I'm going to sound super corny, but that it feels like there's a kind of magic when a film comes together and, 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 you know, it's, it's wonderful. And, and you hear about like what it took, mm you know, that nobody ever think, thought the thing would even get made or um, it was a last minute decision and we shot it here and not there. And that made, you know, all the difference. And yeah, it's hard not to use a word like magic for me. Absolutely. I mean, as a, even, even having worked in film for a decade, I still haven't lost that ability, like that mm. magical feeling when something, when you see something on screen. Uh, and and it still baffles me the the thought that sometimes the biggest as someone who reads a lot into films and thinks a lot about films sometimes you're overthinking things that were maybe a throwaway decision on a set and yes. that in itself is a kind of alchemy that I'm fascinated by. Yes, yes, yeah. Folks do that with novels too, and I love that. Right, this kind of like this you know these beautiful kind of interpretations of things that you don't want to hear the novelist respond to mm. because they say. <laughs> Oh, that was a, I, I wrote that because of a note from my editor about continuity. <laughs> you know? No one needs what? to know that. <laughs> Nobody needs to know 
<laughs> which which kind of um really brings me neatly to my last question for you, Emily. And it's um I kind of mentioned before that the reading the book felt like experiencing a film or watching a film, and it's in a part of that was actually the the way that it's presented with the footnotes, with the illustrations, with the change of formats, with the really playful headings and and titles of the chapters that kind of very mm-hmm. s- switch between kind of tones and and who's doing the narration in that particular chapter. So it, it's a slightly big question, but a, it's a slightly double-edged question. But did you envision the book as this object, uh, as this experience as well? even adding that additional layer to the novel and um in the second part of the question is how do you want the readers to experience it mm. yeah i certainly thought of the book as object in a way that i that i didn't at all in campus and i haven't ever with any other fiction that i've worked on i was thinking a lot about which which you know i'm hearing from readers who are who are, are reading the book or experiencing the book through audio or through e-version and i'm thrilled that they are but i really wanted people to hold this book in their hands um partly just again because of of maybe my victorian sensibilities but because of some of the things the book takes up in terms of objects right and in terms of um um uh, you know, something even as small, and this came later in the in, in the process. But the decision and the, and the UK cover, I should say, looks quite a bit different than the US cover. But once you pull that binding off um, of the of the US cover, there's a red book and Mary McLean's jacketless red book. And so we, I mean, even from the design team, we kind of talked about those things. Um, and and I was thinking about the book as object. And then I think in terms of of the illustrations, um, and that was a, a queer illustrator named Sarah Lautman. Um, Part of that was just that Sarah had contacted me and we talked about working on something and, and I got a ways into this and I thought both because of illustrated novels of the time, right? But also because of Sarah's aligning interests, it makes perfect sense for Sarah to illustrate this book. And I, ha- I hadn't initially conceived of it as an illustrated novel, but that makes, you know, it, it wasn't, it's now very uncommon unless it's sort of, you know, a graphic novel um, to find illustrated novels for adults. That wasn't always the case, right? We associate illustrations so much with children's books now. Um, and that wasn't always the case. We used to expect illustrations in novel. And there's this great queer history of the illustrated boarding school novel with these, you know, androgynous sort of, um, women in their sporting clothes going, you know, going off on, on, on the crew trip or whatever it might be. And Sarah was very well versed in that. So it, once, you know, we started talking about her illustrating the book that all the more made me think about the book as object in a way that I think as a novelist who's usually thinking about character and voice and putting characters in scene, I'm just normally not. And that did start to dictate, I think probably like filmmaking decisions I made about chapter headings, right? And decisions I made about arranging material. But I think more broadly in terms of my vision for the book, it also coalesced for me um, something thematic that traces all the way back to the Gothic, which is so often Gothic novels are about various acts of looking, right? It's so often about who is seeing what and who hasn't seen that thing. And um, the illustrations play a part of that. It's another way of looking at this world. It's another way of seeing these characters. Because Sarah was illustrated while I was writing, sometimes she would she would see something or she would illustrate a moment that I had seen differently. And so we were kind of having a conversation in that way, um, which is again, not how I've written fiction before and also probably feels more like filmmaking, that collaboration, which is not typically a thing I would do. So um, 
so yeah, I, I really started thinking, I think thematically about acts of looking and playing that, playing with, and I already was, it already fits the train of a gothic novel, but really playing that up as something that connects the sections. Um, who sees what, when, what information do they think they have? And that includes the, you know, the, the audience, right? What information do you have? What information are you being fed? Um, versus the information the characters think that they're having, they have. And so that plays with the plot, certainly. Um, but I think it was broader than that. And that gets to that notion of, of the book as object. And I'm sorry. And what was the second part of the question? The second, just... th- that's fine. <laughs> that's, uh, my second, the second part of the question was, how would you like the, the readers to experience playing mm. by heroines? Yeah, I mean, I think like, so. The simplistic answer is if you can, if you can get even from your library. I'm not cer- certainly not saying to buy it, but if you could get your hands on a hardcover copy, on a, on a, on a paper copy, to me, that's like the. I know this is the, the simple way of answering that, not the broader idea of experiencing, but mm. to hold the book in your hands, um, to have that tactile experience with it. I think partly just even because of the of the the terrain that the novel takes up. When people are telling me, and I'm getting these, that they feel haunted by the story, I'm getting, I'm, it, this didn't come up, but I'm, I'm collecting people's yellow jacket experiences. There's, there's these wasps throughout the novel, um, that show up in various locations. And a number of readers are telling me about sort of, you know, it made sense in the fall when yellow jackets are active. I just got one from someone who lives in New York who was reading the book two weeks ago, who said some yellow jackets flew out of her vent when she finished, right? And so I think all of that kind of, um, um, playfulness. Um, I don't know what to do with those experiences, but, but some of that has to do with kind of like this, this, the book as object and having this kind of tactile relationship with it. So if you can get your hands on a copy, um, I highly recommend it. But beyond that, I think, um, I hope that readers just take pleasure, um, or, or, or sort of let themselves sink into the pleasure that I took in telling this story. Um, and to recognize that's, that's, that I think that's part of the intent. Certainly there's some macabre subject matter, right? Certainly there's a lot of tongue firmly in cheek. Um, but really I wanted, I think, you know, I, I guess maybe this sounds kind of big headed, but I did want readers to luxuriate in the story. I wanted to let themselves sort of sink into and lose themselves in this world. And it's many kind of alleyways, dark alleyways and sort of twisting nested stories that, that contain it um and to wonder what i pulled from real life and what i invented and and um to feel sort of swallowed by it right swallowed swallowed into it so um that's you know that's that's my hope that um obviously i want you to come up for air but that that you you sink yourself into the world of brookhans and stay there a while i love that image of being swallowed by the world of brookhans and um all the all the different um tree branches that kind of emanate from Mm. it um, Emily, mm. I won't take up any more of your time, but thank you so much for for talking to me about the book. And um, if it becomes in itself a cursed object, I kind of <laughs> think that's a great way for it. <laughs> People are trying to tell me that it already is. And I'm just saying, just, you know, if you have a yellow jacket story, send it my way. Um, my favorite one thus far is a bookseller who said she swears to God she's never seen a yellow jacket in their bookstore. She's worked there however many years. She had finished the book. She'd read me. She was shelving some copies and she, she, one followed her through the store, she said. So, but yeah, if, I, I mean, yes. It. What could be more fitting than if itself becomes cursed? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Emily, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. 